I'm Susie Anetta, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology. And in this episode of the podcast, I'm chatting with renowned hospitality designer, Bill Bensley, who's dialing in from his office in Bangkok. Hi, Bill. How are you? Excellent. Absolutely excellent. I love, I love the change of direction that the world has taken. Yeah, it's not necessarily a negative <laughs> one at all, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. It's great. It's, uh, <laughs> it's letting the planet breathe. It's wonderful. All of, us, all of us busy people breathing too. You've probably not sat still for this long for a really long time. <laughs> well, that's right. And I sure am appreciating it. And you know what, Susie? I'm not going back to my old ways. Really? That's interesting to hear. Okay. Yeah. Well, I might uh, delve a little deeper into that subject in a bit, but um, I kind of wanted to go back a little bit maybe to um, the beginning of your career. Um, I think since then you've actually, if I have my numbers right, you've designed over 200 hotels in more than 50 countries across the world. Um, did you have any role models or influences, you know, in those early days, perhaps when you were studying or early on in your career? Anyone that you'd looked up to? Um, well, when I when I first uh, got to Asia, I worked. I became really a Baliophile, and I learned the language Indonesian and some some uh, Balinese too. And I, I read everything that was printed on Bali. So I really became sort of an expert and. Um, for the next five years, t- ten years, really, I, I did was doing landscapes with a Balinese feel and flair to them. Um, so my uh, the people that really influenced to answer your question, Susie, it was a, an Australian fellow named Michael White or Madi Wijaya. Um, mm. He was a um, uh, one of the great gardeners of Bali, and I had to work with him on this project at the Bali Hyatt. Because uh, he he didn't have quite enough, he probably did, but he didn't at the time have enough um, knowledge to how to build a swimming pool. I didn't either, but I worked for a company that did, so <laughs> it was a sharp sharp learning curve. Uh, so, I, have you heard of him, Mari Wajaya? Uh, I yeah, I have actually, um, and I, I'd heard of him before I realised that he was Australian. But the the Balinese gave him that name. Is that correct? Am I getting that right? That's that's correct. Yeah, Made always means the first, the first, um, first born in the in the family, which he was, and which I will. That suits his personality. He picked for that for himself. It was the it means the great, <laughs> but also Made Wajaya M W is also his the the acronym or his nickname is Michael White. So that was also M W. So he was very clever in his in his own name selection. And then also, uh, also early days was um, I worked on uh, quite a few of Jeffrey Bawa's houses in in Sanor, because he he was involved in a state in a, in a state scheme uh, all along uh, the all along the beaches of Sanor with a guy named 
um, the owner of the Tanju, sorry, gosh, I'll remember his name in a minute. But uh, so I, I was able to work with actually the Zekas, both Adrian and Adrian and uh, Alan, on working on their houses. And then the Kojima, Kojima, Dr. Kojima had a house down there too. I worked on that house. And then that, he was so happy with that, that gave me the opportunity to work on the Four Seasons in Hawaii, Hawaii, uh, called Hualalai. And that was my first big, really big project that I did and started in 1989. Mm. What was Jeffrey Bauer like to work with? Well, he, he uh, uh, never showed up. He, he was still in Sri Lanka at that time. And by that time, he was, he was sick. But I, what I worked on was in the 90s, his, his houses, and it was the renovation of the, of the gardens there. So I never actually, I never actually met Jeffrey Bawa, but just right. worked on some of some of his uh, his previous works and respected, of course, his architecture to the nth degree. So that explains your connection to Bali, which is where you have one of your two offices. I'd I'd love to hear um, the connection to Bangkok. I believe you studied with Lek Bunag. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh, he is the guy that that uh, told me to go to Singapore. Ah. Right. Okay. Right. I don't yeah, know how was... well he's known outside of Thailand, though. Could you tell us a bit about him and and what he's known for? Um, well, he is. Um, he's uh, out of all the all my teachers at Harvard, uh, he was by far the best teacher. He's an architect's architect, and um, he explained to me in very simple terms because that's I'm best with simple terms. Uh, the how how architecture is is made and how architecture is uh, how 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 it's best appreciated. Um, and so he was the, the first five years or so when we both moved back here to, ba to, to to Bangkok in 1989. We shared an office, and ah. he um, um, I was doing all the garden work, uh, and he was doing all the interiors, and we sort of split a lot of the interior. He was doing the architecture, and we both split the interiors and such. But um, he was uh, um, instrumental in a project called Maya in the Seychelles. He did a, a super job with that, and also some, some great work in uh, down in the south, the first Ritz Reserve in the south of Thailand. What's that one called? On a small island. I'll think of that in a minute as well. Okay. <laughs> um, so that so that and he since then about maybe five years ago now has become a national treasure of Thailand. Right. So he is on a he's on an art, artistic stipend uh, and supported by the government, which is a great honor. Uh, and he conti continues these um, ten years older than me. We're gonna have we're gonna have dinner this month or this week rather. He's about oh, 10 amazing. years older than me, so that would put him just over 70. Amazing. Gosh. And so do you think it's fair to say that you've had a bit of an, a, a connection or at least an affinity with Asia for, you know, quite a long time now? <laughs> well, I, I, I came over here when I was 24, and so I'm 61 now, so the vast majority of while. my life. quite a while. Yeah. <laughs> the vast majority of my life has been here in Asia, yes. Right. Yeah, and how sure many of those is, yeah. years were you living in Bangkok? Uh, since 1989. 
But I, I started working in Bangkok in 1984. The first project I did here was the Shangri-La, which is on the river. And, and since then, about five, six years ago, we, we, we revisited the Shangri-La and we re-renovated all the gardens there. So things, uh, uh, so it was great to be able to revisit some of the old work because gosh, after 30 years, the gardens can look really, really tired. Yeah. Oh, what a privilege to be able to, to be involved in, in something like that and, and to be able to kind of go full circle, I suppose. Over the weekend, I was up in, in Chiang Mai and staying at the Four Seasons in Chiang Mai. And for about 30 years now, we go, we go to the Chiang Mai and stay at the hotel. For about 30 years now, we're involved in every aspect of the renovation. So we're considered the visual policeman. No one can do anything there without letting us know, and, which, is, which, is, which is great to be, have such a, um, have such a, a control of what we consider as one of our children. Absolutely. I think you need to put that title on your business cards because if you don't, I think I might have to. I love that. <laughs> Visual policeman is fantastic. <laughs> uh, I'm going to wait to see that. Um, so I want to ask you about Bangkok. I mean, you've lived there for decades. It's a city that I love and somewhere that I'm missing incredibly while we're not able to travel. I I'd love to hear from you what you love most about your home city. Mm, I, that's a, that's a, a really, really good question. Um, you know, I, since I started living here, since I started coming here in 1984, it was, back then it was, it was a tough place to live. It was really a lot of traffic jams and the Klong smelt uh, really bad, and there is also uh, some some element of crime in the mm. city as well. So I think it's one of the few cities in the world that um, it just gets better and better, and it becomes more diverse, um, and and the crime is non-existent now. Uh, nothing smells, everything works. The the, the because of the, the transit now is the rapid transit and whatnot. Everybody uses that, so the traffic jams are not, not bad at all. Um, mm. The infrastructure of the airports and so forth works really well. Um, and then the most important thing is the people <clears throat> are still very, despite being urban, the people are, are very um, charming. And that, and one thing that's so interesting about the Thai people and the Buddhist people is that nobody ever loses their temper. Everybody <laughs> respects everybody else. And when I come in in the morning, everybody will why to me, which would like a symbol of respect, and I will give that why back to them. And I think that that's so, 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 so much inner happiness comes out through their their actions of just two hands coming together in front of their face. So I, I, I feel, even till today, I feel very blessed to be able to, to, to be here uh, for such a long time and to be part of, part of their Thai family. You know, in fact, you know, in the 30 some odd years I've lived here, I've never once carried a key. I've never once locked a door. 
I've never wow. once had anything uh, stolen from me. I've never once been threatened. <laughs> yeah, wow. that that's pretty freaking that's pretty freaking incredible for any an urban is. city. Yeah, 14 million people. Yeah, I've never wow. had anything stolen from me. Oh, I have lost some things, but yeah, it's just yeah, and and I have only ever been felt welcome. Everywhere I go. Oh, it's an amazing city. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the pangs of, <laughs> of wanderlust. <laughs> <I mean, laughs> uh, during oh, during COVID, the Thai people have been fantastic in that everybody, absolutely everybody out in public wears a mask because they're more concerned about giving it, not catching it themselves, but if they had it, to giving it to somebody else so that... Mm. So that that's that's how the, the mindset works. Their mindset works is that we we don't want to give it to you, so we're going to wear this mask and feel uncomfortable. <clears throat> but there's not. I could take a walk out onto Sukhumvit right now and walk down and see see several thousand people, and there might be one two people that don't have masks on right now. Mm. And that's why that's why we have. Yeah, very different, and that's why we have no problem here. It's been relatively, we've scooted, scooted through the coronavirus with relatively no cases at all. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite surprised why countries in the West aren't looking at Asia more closely and, um, and perhaps investigating why cases have been so much lower given the density in, in some of the cities. Um, you know, I, I would <laughs> like to suggest perhaps that a big part of that might be that everybody is wearing a face mask. But um, who am I to tell governments of the world what to do? Um, but uh, speaking of lessons, you know, you've been in business and, and you have such a varied business. You've been doing what you're doing for decades. I would love to hear from you what you think perhaps a the most important lessons that you've learned, whether it comes to design or even running a business, because you have quite a substantial team there in Bangkok as well as Bali. What do you think the most important lessons have been that you've learned over those years? Not to be safe, Susie. I think that's, that's, that is the critical element, is that to take chances and don't be safe, you know, experiment. Get out there and be, get out there and be, uh, do things that, that people haven't seen before and that they want to talk about and they want to go and visit, and and also you know create create projects that have many different layers, that have many different layers of both history and community involvement, conservation, um, that layers projects that help people. That's a very important key, and, and that's a, my ethos is how do how can we make make profit but help people along the way and if you do that if you do the right thing as my mom said uh things will come 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 your way as well oh that's wonderful does that make sense yeah it really does i'm going to come back to the conservation element of that in a moment but um i think layering is such a great word to describe what you do and actually i wanted to ask you whether you have a, you know, a, a word or a phrase that you use to describe what you your, you do, whether it's an aesthetic or whether it's a process, how would you describe the, the Bill Bensley look or the Bill Bensley touch? 
Well, you know, I, it's, it's going to sound funny to you, Susie, but I, I, I want, I strive very hard <laughs> not to have a style. I, I don't, I don't want to, to be, um, I, I don't want to have any style. <laughs> that sounds horrible, I know, but uh, it, it uh, how to say, if, if I'm, a, if I'm a, a client and I'm going to build a hotel and uh, I, I, mm -hmm. I'm, I want to have something that's very specifically my own. That's not necessarily something like somebody else did before. So that that's why I find it. Um, that's that's why we do what we do. That's why the the, you know, the tented camp up in in Ubud, Capella and Ubud is, is all about an 18th century Dutch army camp. I mean, how wacky and weird and different is that than anything we've ever done before? So mm. I want every every one of our projects to be as, as weird and as different and as estranged to each other as possible because of my clients. And I, I want my clients to feel as though they have something special, not something that's the next, next thing out of the Bensley box. I, yeah, does that sound okay? Yeah. Yeah. Do you, so do you think your clients come to you because they know they'll get something that's new and unexpected? Or, you know, do you ever have clients coming to you saying, well, we want, you know, a replica of whatever it was that, you know, you last did? Do, they, do you think there is a level of understanding from them that they're going to get something really new and never done before? Um, I, I think, no, to answer your question, no, thank God, they never asked me to repeat something else. Uh, so <laughs> never, ever, right? They, we, we like that or, you know, sure, they, they say, you know, we've liked your work in the past. Can you do something for us? And now that I'm getting more of a reputation for, for being um, green and sustainable and all the echo words I can think of, uh, that is becoming, people are becoming, uh, potential clients are more interested in that as well. But they also know that what we're going to create is, for lack of a better adjective, IG worthy. <laughs> and that's, that's a big, that's a big, that's a big factor now that, that, mm. that by social media, creating something on social media that's going to promote your, promote your project um, in, in a, without having to pay for it, that that's a that's a really big plus for potential clients. Yeah, I bet it is. Absolutely. So I'm curious to hear maybe um, the conversations that you're having with clients at the moment, past, uh, present, and future about the future of travel and maybe the future of hospitality design as a result of COVID and and uh, you know p potential future viruses. Um, of a civil nature is that is it a conversation that's being had in your office and with clients or are you just kind of getting on with what you do and continuing to be innovative in your way um pretty much continuing the way that that uh, that uh we, we're all pretty much 95 percent of our conversations are it's going to pass, and we're not going to have to revisit this again. Um, in, however, in Jeju, we're doing a, a, a beautiful project there in, in the small island in the south of Korea, um, where we're doing, um, by way of law, 
all the bathrooms are no, non-touch bathrooms, so everything is operated just by sensor and whatnot. So, uh, and but still, we're looking at Kempinski and in Vietnam, we're still looking at big buffets and the potential to have buffets. So, there's no real clear, um, clear direction that's saying, okay, let's prepare for the next pandemic that I, that I can see. That's interesting. Uh, would you say that it's the virus and, and obviously the sort of uh, rolling, uh, varying levels of restrictions and lockdowns that you've experienced in Bangkok and also your team in Bali, would you say that that has changed the way that you're working um, and maybe the way that you're working and collaborating with your teams and your clients? Well, you know what is that last year we had our very best year ever. <laughs> And I think that's because of the way that we are collaborating with clients and because of the way we're collaborating, we're also working together in our office. Um, last year, before, before COVID, in one year I did 300 flight sectors. Um, so that, that means that I'm you know, constantly in the air and having jet lag and, and uh, how to say, not, not focused on uh, as, as well as I should have been focused on design work. But the last past year, it's been 100% focused on design work. Uh, and I, because I don't move out of Bangkok, basically, other than to Phuket and up to Chiang Mai, Chiang Rai. So it, it, it helped tremendously to be able to, to not move around. Uh, mm. If I move, move, I, you know, it's like what we're, what we're doing right now is via electronics and Zoom and so forth. I'd have maybe th an average of three or four meeting, half an hour meetings in China, wherever, Saudi Arabia, wherever we're working. That is so much more efficient. And it allows us to work so much in, in much, much greater depth uh, and, and much greater detail that I'm never, ever going to change. I'm not getting back on those planes again. There's no way in hell. <laughs> no way in hell. That's amazing. Not, so not the to the extent. Right. Do you think that perhaps the fact that you had two offices and, and were working with a team remotely to some degree, do you think that that has helped you uh, kind of find a way through working, um, you know, with, with the changing scenario through the last 12 months? Do you think that's been a benefit to you, having had that experience? I think it's a huge benefit. Um, now, everybody, you know, everybody in my Bali office, because they're, now they're working from home, and every single day at 6.30, all 65 of them send me every single drawing that they worked on that day. <laughs> wow. So I, 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 and so I go through that every single night. I go through all 65 of those drawings and make comments or yes, this is good and print this for me and I'll draw it on, draw on it tomorrow and so forth. But um, as where I never had time to do that before, but mm. now, and so even though that they're working from home, they're getting a level of uh, my designers are getting a level of input from both Putu and myself that they've never that they've never had before and it's it's really working out really that's works great well to hear. yeah yeah it's great to hear so yeah you, i mean you mentioned before and i was aware of 
you know, I think you were one of a handful of people that I knew that had quite an intense travel schedule. And you've, you've just said it seems that you're not missing the jet lag and perhaps a few other things. But I'm, I'm keen to hear what you do miss about travelling. Maybe not to the extent that you were, but, you know, what are the things that you miss about being on the road and that lifestyle? You know what I, I, you know what I really miss? <laughs> I really miss it. Is um, every every single summer I go up to uh, uh, Mongolia, and mm-hmm. we uh, for about a month we travel on either on foot, horseback, camelback, or boat, about three to four hundred kilometers. And during that whole time, we're catching and releasing very big trout, and some of those trout are something like even five feet, five wow. feet in length. Yeah, oh <laughs> it's called it's called a taimen. It's a salmonoid, but it's not really a trout, but it's a taimen. And so we, we're catching, and then sometimes I can catch up to, uh, to my record last year, year before, was 86 trout in one day with an average oh of. Oh my gosh! Yeah, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, That's huge, incredible. yeah. <laughs> and and every year I bring. Um, yeah, they, we change people that come with me every week, but they, I bring a whole series of Thai and sometimes the Balinese staff. And some of these kids have never sat out by in a campfire before. They've never been in the wilderness before. They've never been in a, a boat in a rapid. They've never fished before. They've never cooked a meal out by on a campfire, right? And they've never slept in a sleeping bag. So to see these kids and the, the wide eyes that they have and like, wow, I caught a fish, Bill, I caught a fish. You know, it's just, <laughs> well, now what do I do? <laughs> now you take it off the hook, right? So that's, that is, it's such a thrill for me to be able to give, now almost almost all 100 people in my, in my studio have been over to, ba- to, to Mongolia. It's just such a thrill for me to be able to give them that experience, and that's that's a it really is a life changing experience for a lot of these these young Thai designers. Now maybe not so young anymore. Everyone's young for me. <laughs> for me. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. That, that that's what I really miss, Susie, is being getting out to, to Mongolia, and 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 really getting back to places that. Where nobody goes, we don't see another person for for a month. Oh my gosh, you know, that sounds incredible. <laughs> yeah, and of course, of course, there's no telephones, there's no electricity. We take sometimes we take some solar power with us so we can charge, you know, the battery, uh, flashlight batteries and such. But basically, there's no there's no connection to the outer world. Wow. Yeah, that's that's that for me is is. Deluxe luxury travel. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, where is at the top of your bucket list when travel becomes possible again? Would you say it's Mongolia, or is there somewhere oh, else that oh, you want yeah. to explore? Yeah. Hell yeah! Hell yeah! You know, I, I've got um, a whole bunch of tickets for the the Olympics in <laughs> in Tokyo, but I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> and then right yeah right before right when covid hit i had tickets on this train uh that went started in moscow but it, it went down to the south it went to all five of the stans uzbekistan tajikistan azaristan all those five of those stands so that would be that would be number two on the bucket list okay. that was yeah that and that would put me over a hundred a hundred uh, countries uh, visited 
Wow, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, that would have been that. So I'm still going to do that when that comes back online. I think that'll yeah. be great fun. I think you definitely need to do that for sure. Did I tell you tell you about my train project? No, um, please. We're doing that here in in Thailand, um, and it's for for it's an intercontinental and. Will be up in Khao Yai, which is in the national park just to the north of, of, of Bangkok, about a two hours drive. And the real, how to say, USP, unique selling point about the project is that I'm using um, garbage. <laughs> and the garbage is, is the, uh, the old train, the old train carriages that have been sitting in the, in the um, vacant vacant lots of the of the main train station here in Bangkok. They've been sitting there for as long as I've been here. But we bought them all. And oh, now we're wow. in the process of renovating these old train carriages to be uh, hotel rooms. And and of course, I'm going the full nine yards. Each one of the interiors is different, and they all represent places around us, from Burma to, to Vietnam to India and all the different towns in, in Bangkok. So they're all, all very animated, if you will. But I am very excited about that project and that it's um, taking sustainability to the next level up. That sounds incredible. <laughs> that sounds like a really great excuse to come back to Thailand when I'm able to. <laughs> yeah, we should be able to open just about the time when the, the borders open. That's when the, that's, that's the plan. So, yeah, I wanted to ask you about the Shintamani uh, properties and the foundation that you created and, and what it is about Cambodia that makes it so unique and, and why you've chosen to focus your philanthropic efforts there particularly. Um, that's, yeah, that's a good question. And that I guess the honest answer is that um, Cambodia is our, is our neighbour here in Thailand, and, but it's the, also the very, very poor poor sister, in that the average Cambodian makes less than 20% of the average Thai person. The average Thai person doesn't make that much money at all. Um, so uh, a little bit of history in that in the, in the early, in the 90s, when the first time I went to Cambodia, when there was, I could still hear shots and the gunshots of the Khmer Rouge were still killing people, but I, I went in there just because I was being nosy. Uh, I was, how to say, went into the countryside and uh, I came across a family. Uh, that family uh, was a mother and six children. And the six children were maybe born over a period of seven years. So they were born in rapid succession. Um, the youngest two had extended bellies from malnutrition. Um, none of the kids had any clothes, or very little, anyways, and they were living on a pile of sticks in the middle of the middle of the uh, middle of the, in the forest, on the edge of the forest, and eating roots in order to survive. Uh, and it was such a heart-wrenching experience, and even till today, it just makes me makes me uh, blurry-eyed. But. Uh, it just, that experience just hit me in the gut, and I said to myself that we just gotta, gotta help these people, because there's no, there's no poverty like that you ever see in Thailand, or even anywhere that I had been. So I, at that, from that day, I said, you know, let's, 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 let's do what we can. 
Uh, and long, long story short, that family, uh, just a few years later, had a house, had all the kids were in school, had a well, had sewing machines, mom had something to do. Uh, they had, we had vegetable gardens that were growing their own vegetables. And, and after all that got done, lo and behold, dad returned. <laughs> so they, they lived there as a happy family. And, and the youngest kid, happy boy now, actually, he's, he's uh, gosh, he's almost 20 now. And oh, wow. uh, he's, yeah, so he's, it's a, it's a, it's a real good, in that, since then, we've affected something, well, maybe 5,000 families since then. But, uh, the Sintamani Foundation has done something for helped, helped, giving a hand, help, a helping hand up. <laughs> It's a many, many different families, so it's, we've had a, 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 po a real good positive social impact there. Yeah, that's an incredible story. So you've stayed in touch with that, that one family for that period of time. Oh gosh, yeah, we, we stay in touch with, you know, thousand, actually thousands of families through, our, through, the, uh, through the captain heads, but that's, that's sort of the first family that we helped, so yeah, that's a special special family. We know where they live and we know where everybody knows everybody else. For example, the, the kids that we have working at the Shintamani Hotel, um, one, we figured out that one kid's salary is actually supporting seven other family members. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a very different Different societies, an agrarian society that's based on trading a lot and not necessarily money. So, <clears throat> and it's um, it's also I hate to say this, but it's a very corrupt society as well. Uh, in that, in that the kids that go to school many times have to give up their lunch money in order to even be able to take the test from the teachers because the teachers don't get paid enough. So, oh, wow. uh, and. The, the dentistry programs there that we've had for going on for years now, um, while we've served served kids anywhere from four, three, three to four, seven, the vast vast majority have never even seen a toothbrush before. So, um, it, and you would never even think that you know here in this day and age that there'd be countries that don't have enough money to give toothbrushes to the kids. Well, that's this is the case all over, all over Cambodia. But the good part of the, about the story is that now, since we started, at least almost all the families in the immediate vicinity of, of, of Siem Reap, they all have wells. They don't have to go very far. They all have, everybody has a place to live. No one's living on a pile of sticks anymore. And now our big focus is, is not just water, but clean water. So now we're distributing water filters right throughout We've done that, so almost everybody now has water filters. Because I, I think I told you before, Susie, that maybe five percent of the of the kids in Cambodia, even till today, die of dysentery because they can't mm. get clean water. That's incredible in 2021. Yeah, mm. yeah, 2021. Now yeah, horrible. Yeah, the things so, that we complain about in you know first world countries. It's it's uh, you know that's such a sad story, but it is good to be reminded of that you know of the of the vast privilege that we're surrounded by on a daily basis. And we sure are privileged. That's that's for damn sure. Mm. Yeah, you know, we're very privileged. 
Yeah, and we just take it for granted. Yeah. Many for the most part, yeah, we do. We just, for the most part, we just take it for granted. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you a tough question now. Um, you know, if we're facing a climate crisis and we're, we're in the middle or somewhere, wherever we are in a pandemic and... You know, we, we have countries still like Cambodia that are living in such Im impoverished impoverished conditions. Um, you, you seem to me like an optimistic person, so maybe this is a silly question, but I, I would love to hear, you know, whether you are optimistic about the future of the human species or, you know, is it is it too late or, you know, can we mitigate climate change and fix the mess that we've created for ourselves? Yes, it's not too late. Yes, we can fix it, but we've got to, um, we've got to really use our heads. Uh, we've got to change over from fossil fuels. We've got to go to the, we've got to use the materials. Everybody knows this. We've got to use the energy that God's that God has given us. Yeah, that's natural. Uh, and we also have to, we have to be able to enforce the rules of the world, the rules of the country, we've got to be able to enforce that. Uh, and specifically, I'm going to divert now back to Cambodia in a, a little bit, Susie, in that um, uh, I know you you know that, that several years ago I bought a large part of the national rainforest in the southern portion of the Cardamon National Forest. Mm. And, and uh, because I want to do my part to reverse, to help um, you know, global warming, climate change, et cetera. I want to do at least what we can do um, in order to be able to, 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 to make this particular forest survive at least a little bit longer, at least while I'm still on the earth. The, 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 the forests of now, now the forests of, of Vietnam and Laos and, and, and to some extent Thailand too, are pretty much deserts as far as wildlife is concerned. That's not the case yet with Cambodia, the Cardamon National Forest. It's still somewhat rich, um, but we have, um, since I bought this piece of property, I've been involved in it almost daily. Um, in the in the process of protecting it, that's why I talk about um, I'd say enforcing the laws of a country. And the laws of the laws of, of Vietnam state that you can't you cannot poach wild animals, and you cannot take down the trees, and you cannot do the logging in these national forests. So, but they don't. Cambodia doesn't provide any rangers. There's nothing, there's nobody that says, stop, you can't do it, that's actually working for the government. In fact, it's probably the other way around. The government, some government officials are actually part of the mafia that are, are taking down the forest themselves. So that leaves private sectors like us to be able to organize ourselves in, in our own private armies, which, which support and how to say, um, which enforce those, uh, enforce the laws of the country. So I'm working with a company called um, Wildlife Alliance in association with my hotel there. It's a 15-room hotel called Chintamani Wild. And, and up until COVID, we've had, we've had 
lots of people coming in and staying there, we would easily take off 5% off the 5%, 10% off at the top of the this $2,500 uh, rate that we were charging, and to be able to support this this army, this private army, and this private army, I tell you, has picked up something like 800 chainsaws in the last six six months or the six last six years. You know how much one chainsaw can do? It can cut down 100 trees in one day, and. We've, we've picked up something like you know, 30,000, 40,000 snares, and we have this board on our Shintamani Wild that we change every single day, because every single day that we're out there with this 115-person private army, we, we're catching people left, right, and center. But now, <laughs> we don't have the people that are our guests that are coming to pay for this, so next week on Earth Day, we are doing a private how to say, we're doing a, uh, a, a raffle, and uh, we're, we're, as a top prize, we're putting uh, uh, a three-day three stay at Shintabani Wild, which is worth something like $11,000 plus flights and so forth. So, uh, and already, it's only, we started about three days ago, we've already raised 10,000 bucks, so that's, that's wow. really, really good that, that people are interested, and we're, we're gonna get to this $50,000 goal, and that, that that, that will take us, that money will then take us through the rest of the year as far as being able to protect the forest to, to the extent that we'd like to present it to. I hope all that made sense, yeah? Yeah, it does, absolutely. That's incredible. Um, I, I want to finish on with one last question, and that is, I guess, given everything that we've talked about and acknowledging that, you know, buildings and, and the built environment consume a vast percentage of energy that is consumed on the planet. Um, I would love to hear your perspective and maybe any advice that you might have for aspiring young uh, designers, but also developers um, and, and what you would say to them, knowing what you know after <laughs> your many years of experience and also given how much of a, an activist you've been for the climate um, from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's, um, I, last year I wrote a paper, it's a white paper, it's called um, Sensible Sustainable Suggestions. And uh, it, it, in 20 pages, it, it's a synopsis of what I've learned in 35 years. And I wrote it as an extension or an insert for um, all of the world's hotel companies. I don't know if you know, but Hotel companies, when you're an architect, they'll give you this set of building standards and they'll say, follow this, Mr. Bill. And, but I, you know, over the years, I've collected everybody's building standards and basically none of them talk about sustainability. None of them talk about conservation or, or helping society or, and so I, I wrote a synopsis, which you can get if you go to my website, www.thebensley.com, if you go, it's, it's on there for free. And, and what the key is, is that if you're talking sustainability and you're talking to a, I, I've written this, let me back up a bit, I've written this paper towards to be an interest of owners, to be an interest of architects, and an interest of hoteliers. But the key is, if it's going to cost me extra money, I don't want to know about it. If it's going to save me money or make me money at the end of the day, then let me hear about it. So everything in my paper is, is those things that 
because I, I own four hotels, is those things that have saved me money and made me money in the, in the past few years, but it's a, it's a practical, personal experience about how to build and save an energy and how to, how to work with communities, how to, cons how to make conservation even something that can make you money. So I think that's the best answer is that it's a very complex, complex um, question to answer. So the best is to, to have a look at this white paper that I wrote. Yeah, that's an amazing answer. Thanks, Bill. So you heard it here, everybody. You need to head to Bill Bensley's website to read the white paper. Um, that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Bill. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting again, even if it is remotely and I can't see you. But um, thanks again for your time and I hope we get to see each other somewhere in the world, somewhere soon. I'm Just so you know, Susie, I'm smiling just the same, just as wide as, as I always, when I always talk to you, it's always have a grin from ear to ear. <laughs> I'm sure you are. <laughs> I can't imagine <laughs> you in any other way. <laughs>